Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Gardet. It's Thursday, January 27th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. The FDA announced in a step that many thought was overdue that it is stopping the use of two antibody drugs for COVID that do not work against Omicron. Florida wants to keep using them. We discuss. Then we'll be joined by Acting FDA Commissioner Dr. Janet Woodcock to dig more into the FDA's move and next steps for regulation of COVID drugs. And we'll end with a look at what else you need to know about this week in biotech. But first, a word from our sponsor. Over 1.5 million changes happened in clinical trials in 2021 alone. Of those, only 8% were relevant events to people working in the life sciences industry. If you work in investment, strategy, or competitive intelligence, separating the relevant from the irrelevant can be hugely time-consuming. That's where Stat Trials Pulse comes in. Using proprietary machine learning and editorially driven algorithms, we sort through all those millions of events in real time to surface the ones that are most relevant to you. Built by AI company Applied XL and vetted by STAT's national biotech team, STAT Trials Pulse will help you find newsworthy data before it becomes a headline. Try it out for your first four weeks free. If you like what you see, enjoy a special introductory rate available through February 2022. Learn more at statnews.com slash trialspulse. So Monday afternoon, the FDA put out a press release saying it was going to limit the use of two monoclonal antibody drugs for COVID-19 from Eli Lilly and from Regeneron because they don't work against the Omicron variant, which now makes up roughly 99.9% of new COVID cases in the United States. Soon after that, this clip from an interview with Florida Surgeon General Dr. Joseph Ladipo by West Palm Beach CBS reporter Jay O'Brien started making the rounds. Really, we are we are laser focused on data. I mean, it's just I think if if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's the importance of looking at data and not necessarily listening and following what other people or people that the media label as experts say. So we're you know whatever anyone says, Florida is going to absolutely positively put data as number one in deciding in making. Forgive me, are you saying that the Food and Drug Administration are not an experts as to what drugs to approve and what drugs not to approve? I'm saying that Florida is going to make decisions about what we treat patients, how we treat patients, how we manage patients, how we inform health policy in, in Florida based on data. That's what I'm saying. So what you can't see on this podcast are the air quotes that Dr. Ladapo used when he says, quote, people that the media label as experts. And one of those people, of course, is acting FDA Commissioner Dr. Janet Woodcock, who is going to join us in a few minutes to talk about the FDA's decision and what went into it. But before that, we wanted to break down what we know about it and dig into Florida's reaction. So listeners to this podcast are probably familiar with these drugs, but to review, they worked extremely well against most previous variants of the coronavirus, reducing the risk of hospitalization or death when given within the first few days of the disease by as much as 70%. And remember, Regeneron's drug was the one President Trump received when he got COVID. Right. And Florida, in particular, embraced these medicines. They set up clinics, trying to make them widely available. 
In many ways, the state was praised for this. Regeneron CEO once pointed out that while a major Boston hospital claimed that they were too difficult to administer uh, because they had to be used early and they're given by IV infusion to contagious COVID patients, Florida was actually doing this kind of stuff in libraries. But the state was also criticized for championing these drugs, which are more scarce and more expensive, over promoting vaccines, something that put Florida at odds with the Biden administration, not to mention most of the medical community and public health experts. So that brings us to Omicron. Almost immediately after the variant was discovered, academic labs pointed out that it looked like it would be able to evade the Lilly and Regeneron antibodies. Then further testing in multiple labs looking at whether those drugs could block Omicron from infecting cells indeed proved that. And the companies agree. Lilly said in a statement that it's not medically appropriate at this time to treat COVID patients with its drugs because testing has confirmed that, quote, they are not effective at treating the currently predominant Omicron variant. And Regeneron similarly says that its drug, quote, does not work against Omicron in lab tests, which tells us that unfortunately it is also not going to work in people infected with this variant. These drugs, of course, have brought in billions of dollars in sales for Lilly and Regeneron throughout the pandemic. And pharma companies are not exactly in the habit of saying no to more money. But these companies are not going to sell drugs they know don't work. And it's also not the first time the government has done this. Last year, when the beta and gamma variants made up just 11% of cases in the US, the Department of Health and Human Services paused the distribution of Lilly's drugs because they don't work against those. They were eventually reintroduced into use when the prevalence of those variants declined. And the FDA has said that the same thing could happen in the near future if the variant makeup of COVID-19 shifts again in the U.S. But for now, removing these two drugs from use while Omicron is the dominant variant means that current treatment options for COVID patients are much more limited. There is one antibody drug, Vir and GSK Citrovimab, that still retains activity, but it's in short supply. There were also the antiviral pills from Pfizer and Merck, but supplies of them are also limited. And some doctors aren't even prescribing them, as we talked about last week with that great piece by Rebecca Robbins in The New York Times. There's also a fourth drug currently recommended by the government for outpatient COVID treatment, which is our old friend Gilead's remdesivir. It showed in a recent study that it could reduce the risk of hospitalization or death by 87% when given early, similar to the results of Pfizer's Paxlovid. But of course, the drug requires three days of intravenous infusions, so it's a lot more complicated to take than an oral medicine. It's also a lot more complicated to take than the antibody drugs they just took off the market, which only take like an hour or so to use. So it's definitely not, you know, an exact replacement. So Florida Governor Ron DeSantis says they should still be able to use the Lilly and Regeneron drugs. In a statement this week, he claimed President Biden, quote, forced trained medical professionals to choose between treating their patients or breaking the law without a shred of clinical data to support this action. And while there's obviously a political angle to all this, DeSantis has long been considered a potential 2024 presidential candidate to run against President Biden, who he railed against in that statement. This isn't the first time during the pandemic that we've seen states question the FDA. In 2020, amid concerns the regulator would be pressured by President Trump to clear vaccines before they were ready, several states, including New York and California, said they would independently review the applications before allowing their use. So how does the FDA feel about all of this? Well, let's find out. Joining us now is Dr. Janet Woodcock, Acting Commissioner of the FDA. Dr. Woodcock, welcome to the Read Out Loud. Thank you. So let's start with how the FDA decided to limit the use of these two monoclonal antibody drugs for COVID. Can you walk us through the data that the agency relied on? Sure. Well, let's start with the uh, understanding that even back, uh, I was the 
therapeutics lead for Operation Warp Speed. And we focused on monoclonal antibodies really early. So we um, expected that if, in fact, if a variant occurred that was far enough away from um, uh, the, you know, the virus, the way it was at the beginning, if the monoclonals were made against, um, that it would be able to escape the monoclonals. And so uh, assays were set up both something called pseudovirus assays that are pretend virus particles and real virus assays, where you see if the, um, if the antibody can, what we call neutralize the virus. In other words, hold onto it and keep it from getting into the cells, all right? And that's really the basis for how these work and how we pick the antibodies to start with. So uh, when the different strains came along, Delta and so forth, they would be tested in these assays that monoclonals would to make sure they still had activity and could neutralize these variants. When Omicron came along, publications quickly came out and the government testing showed the same thing and the company's testing showed the same thing, that these monoclonal antibodies, certain of them, particularly the Regeneron one and the Lilly um, uh, monoclonals did not neutralize the virus. So uh, that would mean it wouldn't work against the strain. So one of the criticisms that we've heard this week is that there's no clinical data. Uh, that's suggesting, I guess, data from human trials and that the laboratory data hasn't been peer reviewed. Do these criticisms hold any water with you or the agency? Well, there have been a preliminary peer reviewed publications uh, made, published, and the government um, has done uh, assays, as I said, that we're, we've set up long ago uh, to make sure as variants came along that the monoclonals and you know, the vaccine serum would remain robust against them. And so we have a, a really robust amount of scientific data, including from the companies themselves, because don't forget they discovered these monoclonals and they set up assays to monitor them. And they also say that, um, these monoclonals don't um, neutralize Omicron. So there's evidence from both government laboratories, the companies, and then independent academic laboratories, and just from the sequence of this variant itself, which we know has a lot of differences in the uh, receptor binding domain, which is the place uh, where these uh, monoclonals uh, grab onto the virus. So outside of the scientific conversation, we've seen some opposition to this decision to limit the use of these antibodies that seems to be more practical. The argument that we've heard from officials in Florida and others is that other treatment options for COVID-19 are so scarce that using one of these drugs, despite its limitations, would be better than nothing. Does that is that a salient point in your mind? Well, as you know, I've been long head of the drug center at FDA and there's no free lunch with drugs. They all have harm as well as benefit. And, you know, giving people something that doesn't work and might harm them. And also we're having tremendous staffing shortages out there of healthcare personnel and they're required uh, to administer these monoclonals uh, because sometimes you can have anaphylaxis, you have to start an IV, you know, it isn't a simple um, pill or procedure. There are um, other alternatives, including um, FDA recently approved remdesivir for infusion in outpatients. And it has a very, you know, a, you know, a very good treatment effect also against this variant. And um, 
it is IV also, but it is three IV infusions on successive days. So it's a little more complicated, but that's commercially available right now. And of course, there is a, a monoclonal that does neutralize the virus, uh, the GSK vir uh, monoclonal, but it is in short supply. So both Lilly and Regeneron say they have next generation drugs in development that do hold up against Omicron. And Lilly says it's completed phase two trials and that it has hundreds of thousands of doses already made. So on Twitter this week, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb called for a regulatory pathway that would authorize new antibodies quickly based on human safety data and lab evidence of effectiveness against new variants. Is that something that's on the table under consideration here? Certainly. In February, uh, we published, uh, FDA published guidance for industry on what we would do if variants escaped, for example, diagnostic tests, okay, and how we would monitor for that. If the variants escaped vaccines, what would we do there uh, to get additional vaccine available from the same platform, for example, and what we do about monoclonals. And so there we talk about what companies would need to do. And it is a stream, very streamlined program compared to um, uh, what was done originally with the monoclonal antibodies. So, Dr. Woodcock, an- another question, maybe pivoting to vaccines, and I think a lot of people want to know, you know, what the FDA is doing about vaccines for kids under five. You know, Pfizer had a little bit of a setback and is now adding a third dose. So it sounds like those results may be available late March or early April. Moderna has said that data for kids two to five will be ready in March. Do you expect that we will eventually have a vaccine for that age group, kids two to five? And is there a sense of urgency around this with the FDA? There's definitely a sense of urgency, and we're really working extremely closely with the developers on the uh, younger age group. Um, As uh, you know, um, for the younger age group, usually you need a different dosage form, you know, smaller dose. And um, also we need some information in those little children and babies before we go ahead and just authorize it based on adults or teenagers or younger children. So, but um, there is a sense of urgency and uh, we've certainly heard from many, many parents who'd like to immunize their children. I am one of them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yes. (laughs) So thinking kind of more broadly about the FDA's role in the pandemic response, the issue we discussed in Florida with monoclonal antibodies wasn't the first time that we've seen states openly question or view with some skepticism FDA decisions. We saw quite a bit of it in 2020 with the authorization of COVID-19 vaccines, for instance. I was curious, had you seen this kind of pressure on on almost like the federalist system uh, at any point before in your career at FDA? And do the objections from states in this matter kind of have influence over how the agency conducts itself? No, we conduct ourselves, to answer your second question, according to the statutes and the regulations and our role in um, in, um, overseeing uh, product development and uh, marketed products. So Uh, We have seen in the past states that um, for various things, for, um, you know, um, cancer-causing agents, for example, um, in California, and and we've seen uh, areas where states might want to go a different direction or have a different point of view than the federal government. And, you know, you need to talk to the folks and work these things out as best you can. This, of course, is 
higher profile because all the states are so involved, the state uh, health departments and so forth, and, and the whole state government in response to the pandemic. So naturally, there would they would you know have their own opinions, and naturally there would be some differences sometimes because um, you know there's a great deal of uncertainty here. Uh, we also. Um, you know, when we started the monoclonals, and this is what's kind of ironic, I was still at Operation Warp Speed then, and we had gotten these monoclonals out, and I had, we had quite a bit of difficulty talking people into administering them at first. Uh, so, um, you know, um, it cuts both ways, I'd say. Well, we know we're just about out of our, our short time with you. So we just wanted to ask you one closing question, just thinking about how long you've been with FDA since 1986. And of course, in the top job now, <laughs> as you know, Robert Califf makes his way through the confirmation process. What's next for you? Uh, well, that's not something I'm really ready to talk about. I'm um, certainly going to oversee, as I said, a, a orderly transition at FDA, and then we can uh, have more conversations about that. But uh, the handoff is in the middle of a pandemic and all these uh, different things that's going on. I'm definitely going to make sure we have a very uh, a robust handoff. Well, when you do uh, have the time to talk about that, we'd love to have you back on the show. Um, thanks so much again for joining us, Dr. Woodcock. Sure. Thank you. We talked with healthcare equity strategist Jared Holtz from Oppenheimer about the rough time biotech stocks have been having. Well, it hasn't gotten any better. The last five days, the two uh, biotechnology index funds we talked about, the IBB and the XBI, are both down about 5%. But there was some positive news from one biotech company this week. Adam, tell us about Sierra Oncology. Yeah, this was kind of a feel-good story. Um, Sierra Oncology is a small drug maker. They are developing a drug for myelofibrosis, which is a rare type of blood cancer. And what's interesting about their drug is like, I, it, it kind of makes me feel a little old because I was I had been covering this drug, the development of this drug, way back in like 2008, 2009. And this drug has gone through four different companies, including Gilead Sciences, actually, is one of the biggest companies that was developing this drug. It landed in the lap of this little company, Sierra Oncology. And so to, uh, this week, uh, they they had results from a, a phase three study, which are positive. And what's really interesting about this drug is that um, maybe to give, to give you a little bit of lesson about myelofibrosis, most of the symptoms affect the spleen. The spleen gets a bit really big. Patients have these really horrible symptoms. They get fatigued. They get fevers, um, gastrointestinal symptoms, and the like. Um, but they also get anemic, and this drug by this drug from Sierra Oncology, it's called momolotinib, uh, actually treats the anemia that's associated with myelofibrosis, and it's something that the other drugs that treat myelofibrosis don't do. Most notably, a blockbuster drug that's sold by uh, Insight and Novartis, it's called Jacify, and you know that's like a two billion dollar drug, but it actually doesn't do anything for anemia. Uh, in many patients, it actually makes anemia worse. So that's kind of interesting about this drug, momolotinib, from Sierra Oncology, in that it does sort of treat this other, you know, pretty significant and serious symptom of myelofibrosis. So, you know, they're going to file for approval uh, in the second quarter. And, you know, it's, it's a, it, like I said, it's a kind of a positive story in what has been uh, a not-so-positive time for biotech. And at the same time, there was bad news this week. Um, Damien, walk us through Gilead and Cortexime. 
Well, right. Speaking of, you know, Gilead's potentially questionable decision making when it comes to uh, which cancer drugs to take forward, we learned this week that that a completely different Gilead treatment um, had been basically its development was interrupted by a potentially serious safety issue. The FDA placed a partial clinical hold on five studies involving this Gilead cancer drug, which is um, it targets what, what people describe as the don't eat me signal. Um, and basically, the idea is that you can empower the immune system to attack cancers by disabling uh, a tumor's ability to evade getting eaten, um, so to speak. Now, whether that will ever pan out for Gilead is is kind of an open question, given uh, this action by the FDA. There's more questions than there are answers. The Gilead statement was relatively terse. Um, but it acquired this drug in a roughly $5 billion deal. And so I think this news, albeit you know incomplete in nature, has really just renewed the questions as to whether Gilead has been a good steward of its own cash. It's a company that uh, has made a lot of money based on its incredible success in developing antiviral treatments. But a lot of its attempts to pivot beyond that, specifically into oncology, haven't exactly gone that well. And then in the sort of macro world of biotech having a bad time, a banner biotech name like Gilead Sciences having bad news did kind of seem to only exacerbate some of the sentiment stuff that we were talking about last week. Yeah, I know, Meg, you know, you've I know you've talked to Dan O'Day, the CEO of Gilead, and, you know, they make a big deal about these acquisitions uh, that they make, you know, a lot of them in cancer, right, to kind of build up their cancer business and and do these kinds of deals. And I think it's kind of one of these growing concerns is, you know, are they getting the bang for the buck that they're spending, you know, on these deals? And are they getting the returns? And, you know, this this setback that they're having with this, you know, this quote unquote, don't eat me cancer drug. Do raise those, you know, maybe raise the concerns a little bit more that, you know, these deals don't pan out. Yeah. And it seems, you know, it's been particularly problematic in the cancer space for Gilead. It's been something they've been trying for years to build up. Um, of course, all eyes are going to be on Trodelvi, the the breast cancer drug that they acquired from Immunomedics um, in September 2020. Um, that one seems to have a lot more hope behind it. So um, that one will be one that's closely watched. Um but, you know, pivoting over to the other disappointment of the week, um, Damien Phyllison and Cortexime. Right. So people may recall Cortexime. I mean, there's been a wash of news in Alzheimer's disease and biotech this year, but maybe slightly under the radar was this uh, fairly small company out of greater San Francisco area, which was pursuing the very promising idea that Alzheimer's takes its root basically in a gingivitis infection. And there's a lot of basic research supporting that. So here's this company with a drug that uh, theoretically targets um, the uh, the bacteria as it gets into the brain and might reverse or at least slow the advance of Alzheimer's disease. We learned last year in a large, relatively large trial that it did not do that. Um, and the news this week is that the FDA has put a clinical hold on that development um, owing to safety, which is you know really not surprising probably. Um, there were some pretty serious liver toxicities that we saw uh, in that study from last year. The headline, of course, was that it didn't meet its goal of actually improving Alzheimer's disease, but there was definitely a sort of intellectual breadcrumb trail to follow that maybe this might be in the future. Anyway, it further depressed Cortexime's stock price, and the company is now looking to cut costs um, and, and kind of you know marshal its resources to move forward. But it's just, again, in an already negative sentiment for biotech, it's another stinging reminder that most of these ideas don't work, and that even after uh, something bad like a negative clinical trial readout happens, a lot of these stocks have even further to fall, and bad news can come yet again for, for companies that have already been stung by it. Damien, what I remember most about Cortexime and your reporting on Cortexime was 
the way that the company uh, characterized those study results, which were so negative to basically everybody who looked at them, except the company insisted that it was like a great day for Alzheimer's patients. Yeah, those comments were jarring at the time and have only uh, have only seemed further disconnected from reality uh, as time has passed. But we'll see. I mean, they're still in business and there is still, as I said before, a scientific rationale to the under- that underlying theory of how Alzheimer's works. So one never knows. As you mentioned with the uh, Sierra oncology drug, sometimes decades go by before people figure out how to properly test the medicine. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and what you think of the FDA's decision on the monoclonal antibodies. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.